friend, and welcome back to the podcast. Today is an interview with Amber Hollingsworth. She's a master addiction counselor, and she also runs the YouTube channel, Put the Shovel Down, which I've referred to a lot. And in today's episode, we dig into the stages of change as well as triggers and how to manage those. Um, So I'm really excited to talk about all of these things with her and for you to even be able to reflect on like what your triggers are and kind of figuring out ways to manage those triggers and also um, where you might be in the five stages of change. So she explains what the five stages of change are and where you might be in the process. So I'm excited for this episode. (laughs) Let's dive in. Hey friend. Welcome to Beyond the Booze. I'm your host, Victoria Plummer, daughter of the Most High, wife, boy mom, and multi-passionate entrepreneur. I know that you are sick of wallowing in shame after another night of binge drinking. I know that you want to quit, but you can't imagine a life without alcohol. My mission is to set you free from the lies, fears, and habits that are keeping you stuck in a toxic relationship with alcohol. In this podcast, you'll learn about spiritual growth, personal development, healthy lifestyle habits, and recovery education so that you can start living a life you love. If you're ready to take your power back, grow in your faith, and live a more purposeful life, you are in the right place. Whip up your favorite mocktail. Let's do this. Amber, I am thrilled to have you on the podcast. One of the areas of my podcast that I feel like I'm lacking is recovery education. So who better to talk about this than you, um, a master addiction counselor. Um, So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And I I can get super nerdy and go way in rabbit holes on this stuff. So you'll just have to contain me. (laughs) Okay, I'll try. But you know, I'm kind of like obsessed with your uh, YouTube channel. So um, well, thank you. I appreciate you having me here. <laughs> Hopefully I can say something that will help somebody somewhere. I think that you will. I definitely think that you will. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to say that I, I do love your YouTube channel and I feel like you bring like truth, Southern charm and fun to the recovery space. And I really appreciate the work you do. Well, thank you. Uh, you summed it up nicely. That's the way I kind of want to be. <laughs> Sometimes people I, think that I'm too I'm too funny or sarcastic about it because it's a serious topic. But it is. But there needs to be like some sort of lightness and hope, you know? Right. I agree completely. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'd love to hear just a little bit about like what made you decide to go into um, becoming an addiction counselor? Well, it actually just sort of happened to me more than I picked it. And I, when I get asked this question, I always wish I had like some kind of like really great origin story like other people have, because most people in this profession, they choose it specifically, usually because they've battled addiction themselves. I just sort of, I, I accidentally wound up here, but I definitely think this is where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> Uh, if that makes sense. I do come from an addicted family. Um, everyone in my family, almost everyone besides uh, my sister, myself, and I have one brother who hasn't struggled with that. Everyone else has all the grandparents, um, 
uh, the sister who struggled for years and years with like a methamphetamine addiction. My mom died of methamphetamine addiction, mm. alcoholism everywhere. So I definitely have that personal lived experience with it, but it's not why I got in the field. <laughs> I really, it's kind of funny because I really didn't even realize or see it until I was in the field. And then looking back, because it's so normal, it just seems so regular. Yes. Like I didn't think anything yes. about it. And so I was in the field, I'm like, oh, that's not how everyone is. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. So true. Yeah. So, so you just had decided to like go after it and. Well, my, at first I went to college to be a teacher. Okay. And um, it's kind of ridiculous because I studied the fancy term is health and human performance, but really it's like health and PE teacher, which is yeah. ridiculous because I'm not sporty at all. Like I can't catch a Nerf ball from three feet away. I don't even know what I was thinking. Um, and so I tried to, I was a teacher for like three years in high school and that was really hard. So I thought I'll go back and get my counseling degree thinking I'd be like a school counselor, but I couldn't really like afford to take off a whole year to intern as a school counselor because it's just me. Like I don't have anybody else helping at the time. So, um, so I changed it at the last minute to mental health counseling major at, at Clemson, like to get my master's degree. And then I wound up in an, an internship that was based on addiction. So that's kind of how I, I found myself here. Sometimes I tell new counselors, I say, don't worry about it. Your specialty finds you. You don't find it. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. And I mean, I think you're really, good at what you do and you're passionate about it apparently. So. Oh yeah. I love it. I'm <laughs> passionate about it. I feel like I'm in the right spot. So I'm, Absolutely. I'm very thankful. Yes. Well, so I kind of wanted to talk about, you know, recovery education, of course, but so a little bit of my background, I'm not going to go super in detail, but you know, I had gotten a DWI back in like 2014 and I had to like do like mandatory substance abuse counseling and had to kind of go to this course or whatever. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that was really enlightening to me was like when they, when they went over the topic of like triggers. And so I thought maybe you could talk about that a little bit, just like, mm-hmm. what are they? Um, yeah. What are some common triggers and yeah. What could you do when you're feeling triggered? Okay. Well, that really is sort of all about brain science. And we all have triggers, whether we have addictions or not. Um, we're we're like creatures of consistency and routine. And so we we program our our brains to work efficiently. And what that means is we put a lot of things on autopilot that we don't even realize. Like probably when you get out of the shower, you dry off the same exact way every single time. Like I start my feet, you know, like if I've if I've paid attention to it, I realize like I do this the same way. You sit in the same place in your house, like you do the same things. And that's mm-hmm. because your brain wants to put as many things on autopilot as it possibly can so that it can pay attention to other important things that are happening. And so triggers what happens is when we are engaged in whatever addictive behavior or substance use or whatever it is, we all have patterns and routines associated with that, right? So there, there are certain places we do it, people we do it with, ways we do it, how it happens, clothes we wear, whatever. And all of those things get so closely connected to the addictive behavior that when you're trying to stop any kind of addictive behavior, if you encounter any of those things, it could be music, could be smells, anything like that. What happens is it activates that neuropathway in your brain and you can like be automatically back in that 
place. Like, it's just like you've driven your car so many times, you can just like automatically drive. <laughs> You're just out of the, the car just starts to go there, you know, and you don't even realize it. And so triggers can get you on that autopilot way to leading you back to relapse. And even if you're not going to autopilot and you recognize it, it's like, oh, it's activated. And now I really want to, because I've seen the thing, smelled the thing, felt the thing. It could be a triggers can be external, like things you see or come across in your environment, but they can also be internal, like certain feeling states or certain times of day that we historically have have gotten sort of lined up with our addictive behavior. So if I if I always drink every day when I get off work and I get off work at six o'clock and I stop at the store and I buy something at six o'clock, I am going to want to drink no matter what, because my biological clock is set to it. So knowing what your triggers are is super helpful because you can the best thing you do is try to avoid them. Like, don't be a cowboy. Like, I tell people, change everything possible. If you come home after work and you put on your basketball shorts and you watch sports and you drink, then I want you to go somewhere else after work if possible. And if you do come home, I want you to not put on your basketball shorts and I want you to sit somewhere else and I want you to turn something else different on the TV because you're either going to fall into that autopilot. And if you don't, you're just going to make it really hard on yourself because you're going to want to. And then you have to spend all your energy resisting. And that's no fun. Right. So that's, that's sort of my overview brief take on triggers. Hopefully that's helpful to someone. That was super helpful. And even enlightening to me today, because I went to the gas station and I just moved to a new area and like the gas station kind of has this like cigarette smell and it smells like a casino, Uh huh. you know, and it just like, like I have normally no desire to drink because I know how terrible it is for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but just like for a split second, I felt like my mind was going there and I realized that that smell was kind of triggering. Yes. No, that's a perfect, <laughs> perfect example. And smell is actually the strongest sense associated with memory. So smell wow. is huge as far as like triggers is concerned. And it's so interesting that you say that because our triggers are very, very, very unique and personal to us and our patterns. Like I had this, when I worked in detox, we were having this talk about triggers one time. And this lady was talking about, I was sort of going around the room, I explained triggers and then I was having people identify like at least two triggers or something. And this lady said, oh, when I put my high heel shoes, I said, why are your high heel shoes a trigger? She's like, cause those are my going out shoes, girl. And when I put those shoes on, I'm going to party or whatever, you know, and, and other people, like I had a teenager one time who told me, this was kind of back when like a lot of kids were like emo. I don't know if you know that word, but like, oh yeah, a lot of people. <laughs> And so he had like that emo, like classic haircut, which was like really long in the front and kind of like hep- over his face. And he told me like, when my hair hits my cheek right here, it's a trigger because I'll just wow. be so wasted. Right. And my hair would be like falling in my face. And so it's so personal and unique. And it's about knowing yourself and your patterns and your routines. And a lot of people, they make the mistake of thinking, okay, I know that's my trigger, but I don't want to drink like you said, like, and they mean that sincerely or use or whatever the addiction is. It's just not going to bother me. It is going to bother you because until you change all those neural pathways, it, it automatically activates it, whether you want to or not. Like when you go to movie theater and you smell popcorn, you automatically want popcorn. Even if you not hungry, even if you don't want to eat the popcorn, now you want it because you smelled it. It's like that. Right. Mm hmm. That makes total sense. And I, and I feel like you kind of touched on this, um, like what you could do when feeling triggered. It made me think about 
you know, you're talking about changing your patterns, you know, Mm -hmm. like changing that, you know, that habit cycle or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, the trigger, the action, the reward. Mm -hmm. Um, It made me think about, you know, they say like change your playmates, your playgrounds and your playthings. That's right. Yeah. That's a a recovery saying and a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you can do to try to avoid your triggers, that's plan A. Now, sometimes no matter what, you're you're just, you're going to get triggered. You're going to run across it. So plan A is avoid it at all cost if possible, but it doesn't matter how hard you try, you're going to get it. So when it does happen, what's going to happen is the thought, the craving, the idea is going to get in your head. And once it gets in there, you can't really control it. The thought popping in there, it just does it on its own, but you can control whether you entertain that thought and invite it to stay longer. If you let yourself go down memory lane, if you let yourself fantasy, start planning, scheming, remembering when, uh, feel sorry for yourself because you have to be sober. If you go down that rabbit hole, it's going to make that craving bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can make craving last days and weeks if you want to. Or you can sort of say, okay, the thought popped in my head and then purposefully um, you can't really say like, don't think about it. Cause that's just going to make you think about it more. But what you can <laughs> say is I'm going to distract my attention over to this. I'm going to engage and do something that forces me to focus. Like sometimes watching TV or reading a book is not good because you can be seeming like you're doing that, but you're not. So it has to be something that requires you to focus. You shift out of it. Mm-hmm. So once you have had a trigger and you've started a craving, the, the damage control plan is to, is to distract yourself. Cause if you do that, most cravings only last like nine minutes unless you fuel it. And most of us are like, okay, I can get through nine minutes, (laughs) you know, but when it goes on for days, that's wears you down. Right. Something that I've done recently is, you know, cause just knowing myself, I realized that like reaching out to someone and like just telling them like when that initial thought happens, like as soon as I think about it, like, just like, Hey, I thought about, you know, like doing this today. And Mm -hmm. just like, I have a friend who's like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're on the same wavelength and she Mm -hmm. understands, like she's not addicted, but she's on a path of healing. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) she's, you know, understands, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just reach out to her and like, just kind of like, I don't know, bringing the thought to light just helps me like release it really fast. I call it like telling on your addiction, like being a tattletale, (laughs) tell it as soon as it happens. Right. Because once you tell it, it doesn't have any power over you. And now someone else knows. So you have like this level of accountability. And honestly, it doesn't even matter what the other person says. The only way it matters is don't tell someone who's going to scream or yell or freak out outside of that. They don't have to do or say anything special other than distract you. You could say, tell me a funny story or what's going on with you because this happened. You know, it, it's not about the other person having a perfect response. It's literally about saying it out loud. I feel like it's like turning the light on the scary monster in the closet and it's just not scary anymore. It just loses its power when you do that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the only other thing would be someone who's given you like a, a free pass, like, oh yeah, you're going through a lot. So, you know, it, it's okay. You know, obviously. Oh yeah. And you know, which people are going to do what in your life, you know, the ones that going to tell you what you want to hear, you know, you know who to tell. So if you already have those people identified, that's even better. Cause you don't want to be trying to figure that out in the middle of the craving kind of have to have 
like, you know, on your favorites in your phone or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, the next thing I wanted to talk about, um, that was really helpful for me. And I know it's going to be helpful for everyone else is just understanding the stages of change. So I'd love for you to, to dive into that and yeah, tell us about the five state or I don't know how many stages are the stages of no, change. No, you got it right. No, you got it right. Is it five? Okay, cool. Um, I don't know what they all are, but yeah, the stages okay. of change, what they look like and yeah. Anything you want to share about that? Well, I'm going to sort of briefly give you the quick overview of like the clinical, the, the way they train like counselors on it. And then I'm going to give you the more like practical, like this is happening to me, like what's really going on, like the real life things that are happening. So the clinical way is there are these um, stages that people go through. And the first one's called pre-contemplation, which is fancy for denial. Like, I don't have a problem. You people are crazy. Leave me alone. I don't know what y'all are talking about. Denial. It's called pre-contemplation. Contemplation is like this stage. And this can last a really long time. This is where people get stuck. Um, Where it's like, okay, I have a problem. I need to do something. And it's this, this stage where you're trying to figure out what to do about it. But a lot of times when you're contemplative stage of change, you don't like fully accept the problem for like the depth of it. It's like, maybe I'm, I'm drinking a little too much. I need to cut it back. Or, you know, you, you kind of get it, but not completely. So contemplative is just fancy for, I'm, I'm thinking about it a little bit, right? Preparation is the next like clinical stage. And that's when you actually start to figure out um, well, I have that one friend who got sober. Maybe I should call them up or maybe I should talk to someone or should I go to one of them like Zoom AA meetings? You know, whatever you start thinking of ideas of maybe about taking a step. You start considering steps you could take and thinking through what might work for you. And then you move into action and that's when you start taking the steps. And then and then you move into maintenance. And that's when you, you know, you, you stop doing whatever it is and you're 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 on the right track. But just because you're on the right track doesn't mean you're going to stay on the right track. You have to have a plan for how am I going to stay in the good zone. That's clinically the way you put it. The way that I would probably focus on it for your listeners is to sort of let's hone in on the contemplative stage of change um, because that's where people get stuck. And what happens to people in this stage, and it's, it's like, people suffer a lot longer than they have to. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's all about sort of coming to terms with a few things. One, is it really like an addiction? Two, um, how bad is it? Three, what's it going to take to fix it? So I always say denial isn't like black and white, like someone realizes I am or I'm not an alcoholic. It's not like that. There are layers of it. And people peel through those layers and come to terms with it a little bit at a time. And as they do that, on the outside, it can look to the other people like they don't get it. They don't mean it. They're not really trying or they said they're going to stop. They're just trying to manipulate me. That's what it feels like, because the things they're trying don't work. But that's not because they're not trying. That's because they're in the trial and error process. Mm. Now, um, the trial and error process Uh, can look different depending on what the addiction is or what your patterns are, but it typically is some sort of, I can manage it zone. And people go through this for years. Um, 
it, it's like I can cut it back. I can drink just beer and not liquor. I can drink just on the weekends. Well, as long as I don't, you know, drink with my one friend who gets out of control, I'll be fine. Um, it can look like with alcohol, a lot of times it's like people start buying the mini bottles. Now, one reason they buy the, the like the little mini bottles because they're easy to hide. But the other reason why sometimes people buy them is because they're trying to manage it. It's like, okay, these are standard measured drinks. So I'm keeping myself like there's no like pour in the glass this tall. Like it's a way that they're trying to like keep themselves managed. Um, sometimes the bargaining doesn't, it doesn't even have to be like, I'm trying to keep like the substance. It can be like, um, okay, I'm gonna quit drinking, but I'm not gonna give up my boyfriend who's alcoholic. <laughs> or I'm gonna keep drinking, but I'm not gonna let go of this job where everyone's using drugs everywhere. Or it, it can be trying to bargain with keeping something else in your life too. And it's like, it takes a while for us to really come to terms with the hugeness of the amount of change that happens because it is so much more complex than we complex than we think it's a lot more bigger than just not drinking <laughs> and it takes a while for people to figure that out and for people to figure out what systems are actually going to work for them and I call that the bargaining phases let me try it this way let me negotiate that you know and we all do that when we're trying to change anything being in our life it's not like specific to addiction um, we all do that. Like if you're in a bad relationship, you're going to bargain with it. Maybe, you know, if I do this, maybe if we don't go here, maybe whatever, you know, mm -hmm. we try all these things before we really sort of get to that acceptance point. Usually mm -hmm. you get there from exhaustion. You Once you try all your things and you get completely <laughs> exhausted and you're just like, I don't freaking know anymore. I was, whatever. What do I do? You get to this like readiness to just do what you have to do. And then you're there. But you get there from exhaustion and trying all the ways you get that go. So when I work with family members, family members always want to stop people from trying the things because they know they're not going to work. And I said, no, let's speed it up. Have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? Let's try it. So we can wow. check it off the list. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that's so interesting because it makes me think about my own journey because I, I I mentioned like I got a DWI back in 2012. Like that was actually mm -hmm. my third one, but that was the only one that I actually got arrested for. Um, and then really, you know, I was on probation for 18 months from that. Um, yeah. but it took from that where like, it was kind of like a quote unquote rock bottom, um, until 2020 when I mm -hmm. truly decided, like, I was like, yeah, I guess in that contemplation stage for that yeah. long, you know, it yeah. just felt, it feels like it was a long time. It and then I was fed up. Time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. What are, what are some of the things you tried? If I can ask you that question or yeah. do, can you remember some of the ways that you tried to make the problem better? Mm, I think what, you know, I would, I would try to just limit myself to like two drinks. If I would mm -hmm. go out, that was kind of like what I would try. Um, and then I try to do like special occasions only, which was really tricky because then I was like, what's a special occasion? Right. You, know? you start tricking yourself. <laughs> well, it's the third Wednesday of the month or whatever, you know, special, you know? Yeah. Right. 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 It's like, yeah. there's a birthday this weekend. There's another birthday next weekend. These are all special occasions, you know, right. so it's just like that, that got just murky and right. I definitely get blurry. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I think like you said, I resonated so much with like, finally the exhaustion because that's what it was for me. It was like, I would try to control it, but then I would always end up over drinking. Like, like I would go for a while without, you know, maybe a month, but then there something would happen. And 
you know, all the right triggers, all the right, you know, Mm -hmm. smells and people and the damn breaks. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I would just overdo it and wallow in shame the next day. Terrible. And yeah. And then 2020 came and I just, I had made a commitment and I was like, this just isn't, this is not the person that Mm -hmm. I am anymore. You know, like Mm -hmm. I can't. Like I'm really, I'm ready to take the big, the big step, the big change. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's such a perfect example. And and I don't know anyone who ever quit drinking or any substance for that matter without doing that. Like there's just, no, if they did that, they're not addicted to it. <laughs> so um, everyone does that. And what is so hard um, for people to realize when they're in it is the way they're trying to do it is so much harder. And so I tell my clients, I was like, I know you're not gonna believe me, but promise you that none is going to be a lot easier than a little I promise Mm -hmm. you none is easier than a little and it feels sort of counterintuitive but if if you have an alcohol problem here's what I say what is two drinks really going to do for you nada because if you have alcohol problem then it's going to take a lot more than two drinks for you to feel anything so when you when you're telling yourself I just want to be able to drink two drinks well why it's part of the question because I think you're like tricking yourself out the gate to think two two drinks is going to satisfy you. It all it does is like make you want more. So even if you keep it to the two drinks, like even if you do keep it there, you're miserable because you just want more all the time, and that's what makes it harder. And the other thing I think that keeps people stuck there is because, like you said, it will work sometimes, mm-hmm. and and that's why people try it so many times before they give it up because it does work for a short period of time or it works sometimes. It's kind of like Russian roulette. And so what I tell people is, it's, I'm not saying that you can't ever manage drinking. I'm saying that you can't manage it consistently. Right. And you don't know when the dam is going to break. You can't predict it. And when it does, really bad crap happens. And in fact, it's yes. usually like at the worst possible time. Yeah. <laughs> the worst time for the bad thing happens. Yeah. hundred percent. And it made me think about, so I, um, my background is like a personal trainer. Like after I kind of like went through this experience with like Mm -hmm. being able to be sober for spouts, like uh, definitely drinking a lot less, Mm -hmm. um, and finding a relationship with God. Like I became a trainer because Mm -hmm. fitness and faith were just like a huge part of me changing. And, um, anyway, so this 80 year old woman that I was training, she was like, she had shared this with me and I've carried it for this long, but basically she said that, um, I can always say no to the first glass of wine, but I could never say no to the second. Oh, I love that. It's perfect. Right? right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I just love it when someone says something that just resonates deep and just stays with you like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like in, like in NA in narcotics, they say uh, one is too many and a thousand is never enough, which is so true. Um, right? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and actually if you, the other reason I'll say this too, why it's harder to manage it, like I'm not going to argue with you if you can manage it or not, but I will tell you it's harder. You're making it, you're making yourself miserable is because as long as you're putting it in, even if it's, even if you do keep it to just a little bit, you don't allow your brain to heal. And so you don't get the good part of recovery, which mm-hmm. is the ability to enjoy things you couldn't enjoy anymore. Like the ability to be present and focus in your life. You don't even get the good part. Like the whole reason why you want to stop all the good things that happen. You can't get those because every time you put it in, you reset your brain back 
And you don't get to the good part until your brain restabilizes back out and gets where it needs to be like neurochemically. So you're re, even if you do contain it and you don't do it too much, you bring your brain back to craving, to misery, to wanting more. And it's just not a fun place to be. And so it's like, it's like torture. So it's like, you're either going to overdo it and you're not going to manage it, or you're going to be torturing yourself. So either which way it's no good. How long do you think it takes like your brain? Do you know this? I don't know if you know this, the answer to this, but how long does it take your brain to like heal? Well, I think it, it heals a little bit every single day. And so you've got that depends on what you've been using or how much that first week you're sort of in acute withdrawal um, where, you know, you're like sick, you feel bad. And then after that um, you're not sick, but your emotions are kind of all over the place and you're moody and you're cranky and you don't like anybody and you don't want to do anything and you're not motivated. You know, you just don't, you're just not in a good mental space. And that's really bad that second week. And after the second week, those things get a little bit better each and every day. And when you're three months out, you know, when you're a month out, you, you see the light at the end of the tunnel. You're like, okay, like I can do this. And actually, I'm kind of glad I did this. Like I actually feel better. Like this was a good choice. And then when you're three months out, you're like looking back on it, you're like, I don't even know how I functioned like that. Like that was crazy. Like you, you're far enough out at three months to really like see it for what it was. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for you to even comprehend. Like, you're like, that was misery. Why did I hang on to that so long? That's the way you feel. And then by the time you get like a year out, that person is like a whole nother person. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, that was used kind of like when you think about yourself as a teenager, you're like, I know that was me, but that wasn't like the me now. Like that was like a totally different human and a whole Mm -hmm. totally different life. And so by the time you get a year out, everything is different. You know, it's not that it's never hard or you never think about it, but it doesn't consume your life. It's the thought that pops in there sometimes, but it's not, it becomes easier and easier and easier to resist. And you develop the ability to like and enjoy and look forward to all the other things in your life that you want. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like that's helpful for people to like, be able to see, you know, how long is it, it going to take better. for me to feel better? <laughs> I, I know I tell them, but they don't really believe me until they do it. So. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess experience is the best teacher. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, mm-hmm. I did just kind of have one more question. Um, sure. just knowing who might be listening to this, someone who, um, likely, yeah, it maybe is in that contemplation stage or bargaining stage. Um, they realize that alcohol is no longer aligning with the person that they want to be, or, you know, maybe even God, they feel like God or the spirit, like leading them to a path of sobriety. Like, what would you be your advice um, for someone who's in that space? Well, the, the first thing I would say is don't beat yourself up too much, because I promise you, no one beats this problem without trial and error. Sometimes people go to treatment one time and it looks like they just got sober like quickly, but it didn't. Like there was a lot of trial and error before that. So don't beat yourself up about it. But I just want you, I think the thing to do is to get really honest with yourself and say, just like we were talking about, like, okay, if I'm trying to do it this way, is that really even helpful? Because sometimes we're just tricking ourselves. Like 
do I really want to drink this too? Like, why do I want to drink this too? Like, there's the question, am I capable of it? That's one question. But then it's like, but why? You know, why? What is it that, what's the one part that I'm not wanting to let go of? And why am I not wanting to let go of it? If it's a person, if it's a substance, if it's a place, if it's a job, it's just about getting really honest with yourself. And you don't even have to call it addiction. You don't even have to call it alcoholism. And maybe it's not to that level. But if you feel like deep down inside, if you have that feeling in your heart that it's not right for you and it doesn't fit for you, that's enough. You don't have to say, I'm a heroin addict to stop going down a bad path. You just have to say, like, this isn't right for me. If you feel guilty about it and you feel shameful about it and you feel like you have to hide it and if you're doing things that you don't want anyone else to know then that's enough (laughs) and if you let that go you let that one thing go you get everything else so I would say like addiction is is letting go of everything else to keep one thing and recovery is letting go of one thing to get everything else back in your life (laughs) wow yeah that was beautiful thank you (laughs) yeah I hope that helps somebody (laughs) I think it would. I think it will. It's definitely something I want to like share. Um, I guess my, my last question is how can people find you? Um, People can find me. The best way to find me is on YouTube. I do have Facebook and Instagram, but my, my main platform is on YouTube because I, I try to get, there's so much misinformation out there about, um, overcoming addictions and there's hardly any information out there for family members. So like a lot of people that watch my content, they have a loved one who's struggling. And so my main goal is, is, is to help people overcome addictions, but to put families back together. Mm-hmm. And so we look at it from the family perspective. And so we have lots of videos on YouTube. I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and just all your wisdom and for being here today. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.